American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, help others find us by giving us a five-star rating and a good review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Today, we're talking about Fred Allen, the hugely influential and beloved comic actor. He originated a number of characters, comedic tropes, and types of comedic sketches that have been standard parts of comedy for decades. An interesting thing about this episode is that Unlike the vast majority of our subjects, Fred Allen wasn't publicly and obviously Catholic in any big way. Right. He was a faithful Catholic who lived simply, gave generously, went to Mass regularly, and was faithful to his wife for their 29 years of marriage. But he doesn't have any big Catholic moments. He just lived a good Catholic life. And he revolutionized American comedy along the way. And his story starts the right way. He was born in Massachusetts. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> he was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts on May 31st, 1894. His birth name was John Florence Sullivan, and he was the first child born to his Irish Catholic parents, James and Cecilia Sullivan. He only had one sibling, a brother named Robert. Their mother died of pneumonia when John was just shy of three years old and Robert was about one. Their father took them to live with his late wife's sister, Elizabeth, so she could help raise the boys. When James Sullivan remarried a number of years later, John opted to remain with his Aunt Lizzie while his brother moved on with their father and his new wife. So his was not an easy childhood, but he said he never regretted opting to stay in the home of Aunt Lizzie rather than going with his dad. His dad did get him a job when he was 14 years old at the Boston Public Library, where he would fetch and restock books. This turned out to be an entry into a whole world that captured John's imagination and eventually inspired his life's work. Indeed. He became a voracious reader. One topic grabbed his attention and he began to read everything he could find on the topic. And that was comedy. He also picked up juggling and would perform at library employee functions, peppering in some jokes. After one of these performances, one of the women in attendance remarked, you're crazy to keep working here at the library. You ought to go on stage. So he did. He initially performed under the stage name Freddie St. James and then just Freddie James. He got more notice as he billed himself as the world's worst juggler and would intentionally juggle poorly and make most of his jokes at his own expense, usually about his bad juggling. When he was 20, he got picked up by the local vaudeville circuit and made $30 per week, which was enough to let him quit his job at the library. But he had his sights set on a bigger market, New York. He joked that his arrival in New York created as much commotion as the advent of another flounder at the Fulton Fish Market. Yeah, he was just one more entertainer looking to make it in New York. But he gained enough notice that he got booked to an 11-month series of gigs in Australia and New Zealand. So off he set to cavort with Aussies and Kiwis. It was actually a really important trip for him. He had many long trips on trains and boats between gigs, and he spent that time reading the works of Dickens, Shakespeare, and Twain, along with humorists Artemis Ward, Josh Billings, and more. In all of this reading, he developed a much deeper appreciation for the English language, how to build a story, how to turn a phrase, and how to use words and language devices like equivocation, irony, simile, and metaphor, allegory, and use words that sound similar to one another to affect the listener. He also learned more how to observe the mundane and see the ironic or unexpected within it, and he learned, as he put it, 
that any joke or story can be told in many different forms. So basically, he learned the most important elements of great comedy. Exactly. During this time, his act evolved. He no longer relied on juggling and physical comedy. Rather, he became a monologist and became incredibly adept at the ad-libbed one-liner. Yes. From all of this, he became one of the most important comedians in the history of American comedy. Many years later, Steve Allen, who was no relation, wrote that Fred Allen, quote, had a poet's regard for the peculiarities of sound and expression, and he seemed never so happy as when he could roll off his tongue some glittering allegory, metaphor, or simile. He was actually more intrigued by this sort of thing than he was by the plain and simple joke, unquote. So when he returned to New York, he was a different entertainer than when he left. He started pitching a completely different act than what he had before, and he did it with a new name. Right. Now he was calling himself Fred Allen. He changed his name so people who had booked him before as Freddie James wouldn't try to pay him the same low rate as before, since he now had a much better act. A smart business move. Sure. In 1922, he signed on to perform in a musical review, and he was smitten by one of the chorus girls named Portland Hoffa. Five years later, they would marry, and they would remain married for 29 years until Alan's tragic death. From 1922 to 1932, Alan was never long without a good gig, and Hoffa became a regular part of his shows, dancing and delivering the dumb dame jokes. In 1932, when one show ended and another that was supposed to begin fell through, he decided to try his hand at radio. So he spent time studying the medium and writing a sample script. He pulled together a cast and an orchestra and recorded a pilot program, which he sent to the president of the company that made Linnet Bath Oil, because Linnet Bath Oil had been looking for a radio program to sponsor. That's right, because back in the day, radio programs were sponsored by particular companies pushing particular products, and the ads for those products would be worked right into the script and production of the program. No show had life if it did not have a major sponsor. The head of Linnet loved Alan's delivery, exclaiming, Never mind the show, get that man with the flat voice. And Fred Allen's radio career was born. His first program debuted on October 23, 1932, titled The Linnet Bath Club Review. His show would be commentary on culture, politics, and whatever else he found to be absurd. He would do musical numbers and mock interviews, and he would rib the subjects of his humor without mercy. Which sometimes meant poking fun at network executives and his own sponsors. Yes, those frequently. He called network vice presidents, quote, executive fungus which forms on the edge of a desk that's been exposed to a conference, unquote. <laughs> and he had equally colorful ways to describe some of the things that sponsors wanted him to do. Both sponsors and executives had their reasons for stepping in. The sponsors were the ones paying the money to put the show on the air, while executives were the ones who had to guard the network's reputation and deal with public fallout. So both of these sets felt that they had the right to step in and influence the creative process. It, but from Alan's perspective, he knew that the listeners were tuning in to hear him, not some too careful network executive or an unfunny sponsor with a crazy idea. So he clashed with both sets frequently. As a consequence, his show changed sponsors a lot and was clipped by network censors numerous times. But no matter who sponsored him, his show was funny. He was among the most listened to programs on the air for most of his 17 years. So when one sponsor dropped him, there was always another sponsor willing to take that chance. Over the first few years, the sketches he would become known for and that would become standard features of American comedy going forward began to emerge. In 1935, he titled his program Town Hall Tonight, and he would open the hour-long format with news bulletins and interviews with fictitious townspeople, 
All of it tilted a bit to point out the ridiculous. This format would find its full realization in the segment he later developed called Alan's Alley. And the comedic format he pioneered would be picked up in decades later by NPR legend Garrison Keillor and his News from Lake Wobegon and Prairie Home Companion, as well as by the long-running Weekend Update portion of Saturday Night Live, among others we'll talk about later. From early on and throughout his radio career, his show featured his wife, Portland. She would open their comedic dialogues with a characteristic, Mr. Allen, Mr. Allen. Her high-pitched and nasal delivery became as much a part of the comedic fabric of the show as anything else. Portland did have a high voice anyhow, but then she was nervous on top of it, which made her voice even more shrill. Alan once said her voice sounded like two slate pencils mating or a clarinet reed calling for help. Now, that's just funny. One biographer wrote that Alan threw words around like a custard pie. (laughs) So anyhow, in 1936, Fred Allen ad-libbed what turned into the first shot of a decades-long war between himself and fellow radio funny man, the legendary Jack Benny. Benny had the top-rated show on radio, so Alan was hoping his jab would get Benny to respond, and then their shows would feed each other. Benny heard the joke live and reportedly burst out laughing. Alan and Benny were actually good friends going back many years to their vaudeville days, so Benny was happy to take the cue. The feud was on. Yeah, this mock feud went on for more than a decade, and the barbs became so sharp that some listeners wondered if the two were really blood enemies in real life. Eventually, they would have each other on their own programs. But when they did, they'd be sure to write the best lines of the program for the one who was the guest. Some truly classic moments in radio history came out of this feud, especially the King for a Day sketch on May 26, 1946, when Benny was a guest on Alan's show, and he literally lost his pants. It is hilarious. I'm king for a day. I'm king for a day. (laughs) The two radio stars would actually coordinate some of their feud behind the scenes with their writers running ideas past one another. Which brings up another remarkable aspect of Alan's talent. While other radio stars like Benny employed lots of writers to help him write his scripts, Alan wrote out the entirety of his own show for many years, employing other writers only later in his career. He was so prodigious in his comedic output and so much of a perfectionist that he took it all on himself. He called his writing process a recipe for a nervous breakdown. For starters, he read nine newspapers daily, looking for the odd stories that he could leverage for laughs. He'd clip those and hang on to them until it was time to start planning the next show. During the years that his show was on Wednesdays, planning would begin on Saturday. He would pull out all of those newspaper clippings and other scraps of paper where he'd jotted down ideas. He'd choose five or six that would be the opening news segment for the show and the parts that would inform other parts of the show like Alan's Alley. Then writing would mostly happen on Sunday. On Sundays, he would wake up early and go to Mass at St. Malachy on West 49th Street. A real quick aside, St. Malachy is an interesting story all of its own. It's right in the middle of the theater district and became known as the Actors' Chapel because they scheduled Mass at odd times to fit the odd schedules of those who worked in the theaters. Fred Allen was just one of the many big names of stage and screen who frequented the sacraments there. Yes, Fred served Mass at St. Malachy as an adult. It's a place that may warrant its own story at some point. We'll see. But back to Fred Allen's writing process. 
As I was saying, when his show was on Wednesdays, he'd go to early mass on Sunday. When he returned home, he would hole up in his small office, hunched over sheets of paper, scrawling out the script by hand, moving things around and tinkering until he was satisfied. Then, over the ensuing days, his script would go to network executives. The fungus on the desk, that is. Yes, those lovely people who would give their edit. He would frequently fight those. And then the script would go to the sponsors who would try to get their changes in, and Alan would bristle at those too. And that just underscores the importance of his impact. Like we said earlier, in spite of the careful executives and meddlesome sponsors, he originated a number of tropes and characters and sketches that have lived well beyond him. In addition to Garrison Keillor and Saturday Night Live, other comics who picked up his material include Red Skelton, whose Guzzler's Gin sketch was an Alan original and is hysterical, Johnny Carson, who cribbed Mighty Carson art players from Alan's Mighty Alan art players, and also David Letterman, who cribbed from Alan his stupid pet tricks, stupid human tricks, and his practice of interviewing people who did odd and interesting jobs for comedic effect, among many others. Right. Don't forget about Foghorn Leghorn. Yes, of course. Yeah, Foghorn Leghorn, the bombastic rooster from Looney Tunes, he was a cartoon incarnation of the Allen's Alley character, Senator Claghorn. Claghorn was an over-the-top Southern senator who would only drink from Dixie Cups and never go to Yankee games. Most people probably have no idea at all that Foghorn Leghorn came from Fred Allen. I say, I say, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Now listen up, son. (laughs) Yeah, right. No, right. Nor the rest of the sketches we've mentioned. Allen's popularity peaked in the late 1940s with his show ranking number one in the 1946-47 season, but it began to fade immediately after that, and then the ratings just plummeted. By 1949, radio audiences were switching to giveaway shows, and television really had taken off. Allen did not take to either of these new trends. He tried out television and appeared in a few episodes of Jack Benny's TV show, as well as a few movies with Benny and other stars like Ginger Rogers. But he never liked it well enough to try to make a big go of it. He actually believed the day of the radio comic was coming to an end regardless of television, believing the format had basically burned itself out. He decided to end his show in 1949 with his final broadcast airing on June 26, 1949. His decision to end his show was also influenced by his health. He'd always had high blood pressure, but it was getting worse. And he'd made enough money by that point to live comfortably on smaller ventures. At his peak, he was making about $20,000 every week, which translates to about $270,000 in today's money. Out of that, he had to pay cast members, support personnel, and those writers whom he did employ, but he still had a very nice weekly paycheck out of it. In spite of this, he and Portland always lived simply in an unassuming, sparsely furnished apartment in an unremarkable part of town. They never owned a car, and they vacationed in a modest cottage on the coast of Maine and later on the coast of Long Island. But they were very generous with their money. There were a number of family members, friends, and people he used to work with in vaudeville whom he would support financially to the tune of $50,000 without making any big deal about it. That would be about $675,000 in today's money that he just gave away. Again, he lived a Catholic life and not in a flashier public way. But really, that's a more Catholic way to go about it. Absolutely. In 1952, he published a memoir of his radio career called Treadmill to Oblivion, in which he wrote, Whether he knows it or not, the comedian is on a treadmill to oblivion. When a radio comedian's program is finally finished, it slinks down memory lane into the limbo of yesteryear's happy hours. All that the comedian has to show for his years of work and aggravation is the echo of forgotten laughter. 
The ironic thing is, due to those many comics who picked up his sketches and characters, he never did fade into oblivion. Maybe his name did, but certainly not his work. The laughter continues. And not just those comics, but also because of the magic of YouTube. While writing this episode, I was happy to go back and listen to his stuff. It is absolutely hilarious. We'll link to some of the great ones in our, in our show notes. Fred Allen died suddenly of a massive heart attack on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 1956. He was out on his regular evening walk with his dog when he just collapsed. His death at 61 years old shocked the world of comedy and show business, with many, many big names acknowledging his impact on their own careers and show business in general. His funeral was held at St. Malachy, the actor's chapel. At the time of his death, he was nearly finished with his second autobiography, Much Ado About Me, which was published posthumously. The host and panel of the popular TV game show What's My Line, which Alan had appeared on many times as a panelist, were also deeply affected. On the day he died, they had discussed not doing a normal show and just doing a tribute to their deceased friend. But at the request of Alan's widow, Portland, they went on with their normal show, though in a more somber tone. At the end of the program, they did take some time to give a tribute to Fred Allen. Jack Benny was also deeply shaken by his death. The day after Alan died, Benny issued a statement in which he said, People have often asked me if Fred Allen and I were really friends in real life. My answer is always the same. You couldn't have such a long-running and successful feud as we did without having a deep and sincere friendship at the heart of it. But that was typical of Fred Allen. Unlike the public perception, the real man was a hard-working, simple-living, generous man who valued friendship, loved his wife, and died a faithful Catholic. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, Please help others find us by sharing this episode, giving us a five-star rating and a good review. Also, we ask you to please support the many productions of SQPN at sqpn.com give. To learn more about Fred Allen, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimages to unforgettable American Catholic holy sites, please visit our American Catholic History website, americancatholichistory.org. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History, Instagram at ACH underscore podcast, or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster-Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History, produced by StarQuest.